Good morning, everyone. It gives me great joy to be here with you. Uh, First of all, I thank you all for your love. As Pastor Mark mentioned, uh, just the knowledge that you have adopted us as a missionary family, it just undergirds the importance. It just reminds us that the work of God is important. It undergirds the importance of that work uh, to, to us. And we know we are not alone. Thankful for the elders for giving me this, uh, this opportunity to uh, bring the word of God to you and to study it together. One of the marks of a true believer is the willingness to confess sin. No saint born of God will continuously hold on to sin. In fact, a persistence in a lifestyle of sin demonstrates the heart of an unregenerate person. The letter of 1 John describes many traits of a true believer in Christ. Among them is confession of sin. In 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10, the Word of God says this, If we say that we have no sin, we're doing what? We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, From all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because God has said that there is sin in us. If we claim there's no sin or we have never sinned, of course, we make him a liar when he has said that we are sinners. If we confess, though, he will forgive us. Otherwise, the word of God says there's no truth in us. That's verse 8. And what is the truth? God is a God of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Thy word, your word is truth, Jesus said in John 17. So basically, it's another way of saying, if we say we have not sinned, we have no sin, we don't want to confess our sin, there's no truth in us. As true believers, we acknowledge our sin. We do not continue to abide or remain in it. This is the norm for those who are the Lord's children. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one, no one who is born of God practices sin. There's an element of habitually, continuously, ongoingly sinning. If someone does that, he could easily fall into the category of those who are not true believers. Because true believers do not do that. Why? They do not continue in sin. Why? Because they are born of God, they cannot continue in sin. Sadly, at times, we may fall, as believers, we may fall in sinful ways and stay in them for a season. To make matters worse, sometimes we try to deal with sin, not by confessing and forsaking it, but by hiding its evidence, as if the Lord does not know. We endeavor hard to destroy the spider's webs in our lives without Destroying the spiders themselves. This is exactly what happened to King David. And was the focus of our study today from that familiar chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So you may turn to the word of God to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Thinking back on 2 Samuel 11. We read that David committed two horrific sins against the Lord. And he tried to hide them. Instead of removing the spider of sin from his life, so to speak, he tried to destroy 
the evidence. First, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was one of David's mighty soldiers, as we read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Second, in order to cover up his sin, he purposefully had Uriah placed in a fierce frontline battle position such that he was killed by the enemy. Every now and then, we might act like David. Instead of promptly confessing and forsaking our sin, we tend to hold on to it for a time. We do so because our fallen natures cherish the sinful but vain promises of pleasure. While at other times we are reluctant and even ashamed to come to the Lord to ask for forgiveness. How many times do you remember in your life when you were living in constant sin, you were ashamed to go to the word of God? If I were to ask for the show of hands, maybe every one of us would raise our hands. Why? Because we do not want to be confronted by the word of God when we are continuously holding on to our sin and we don't desire to let go of it. Until, of course, we humble ourselves by the grace of God and we turn to the word, then the word of God will work in us by the grace of God to change us, to get us return to the Lord in full fellowship. So one thing we are assured of by God's word, if we confess and forsake our sin, the word of God said, he is both faithful and just to forgive us. Amen? God is gracious to those who seek his mercy. In light of our text, 2 Samuel chapter 12, there are four means of grace, four means of grace through which the Lord works to restore us from our sinful ways. Stated in question form, what are four means of grace through which the Lord works to restore us back to fellowship from our sinful ways? Look at the first seven verses. The first means of grace through which the Lord works to restore us from our sinful ways is through the confrontation of sin. The confrontation of sin. Notice, the confrontation of sin involves the chosen means, which is the message of God as delivered through the parable of the prophet. How does the Lord confront our sin? The answer is simple, through his word, through his word. Verse 1, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Yahweh, translated the Lord in verse 1, is used 13 times in the text that we are considering, verses 1 to 25. It's the personal covenant name of the God of Israel. After seeming silent all through 2 Samuel 11, because in that chapter we read of David's sins, his sins of coveting, adultery, murder, false testimony, they're all there. In the last verse of chapter 11, it says the thing that David had done 
was evil in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, it was time now for God to intervene in the life of his sinning child. Yahweh was silently watching all along to see when David will come back to his senses and repent. Yet he did not. And that's why God had to intervene. In order to confront David, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan with a parable to prepare David deal with his sins. David had been covering his sins for months. And the child conceived by Bathsheba through their adulterous relationship had just been born. That's in verse 14. When God seemed strangely silent, he suddenly acted. How foolish it is of us to interpret the silence of God with indifference when we are carelessly walking in disobedience to his ways. David had been a shepherd himself, and a story about the theft of an innocent ewe lamb catches his attention. As king, we know it was his responsibility to administer justice to families who had been mistreated. The Lord's words through the prophet Nathan are intentionally and carefully constructed so that David would remember what he had done. The rich man in the parable represents David. The poor man is Uriah. The ewe lamb is Bathsheba. And the traveler in verse 4 is none but David's own lust, which controlled him when he walked upon the palace roof on that faithful night. If we give temptation the opportunity, it comes in as a traveling guest at first. And it can soon become the master of our house if we succumb to it, if we give in to that temptation. Also, the confrontation of sin involves the intended purpose, the intended purpose, and which is the drawing of a response as seen through the anger of the king. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Look who's talking. He's incriminating himself. He's con condemning himself. He's judging himself. David seems to see the reported situation as a real legal case. He thinks it's a real story, real situation. The expression translated deserves to die in verse 5 is literally a son of death, a son of death. So David is saying that guy is a son of death. Uh, he's, he's worthy of death. He's a dead man, David declares. So he passionately passes judgment on that rich man without knowing that he is condemning or sentencing himself. Is this not reminiscent of us? How often we as Christians tend to focus on the sins of others when we seem oblivious to our own shortcomings. How easy it is to be zealously concerned about other people's sins and we forget to look at ourselves first. We got to have to look at the log first in our eyes, right? David is so furious that he exaggerates both the crime and the retribution, the punishment. Kidnapping someone was a capital offense, according to Exodus 21.16. But not so with an animal. In his misguided zeal, it may be that David views the taking of the ewe lamb in this light. 
We know, according to the law, at least David, if not Bathsheba also, should have been stoned to death. Why we say so? You may think, oh, she was forced. She was forced to come to the king. But why she didn't do the right thing? Have we ever thought so? Why she didn't do the right thing? And what are we speaking about? Well, let's read a couple of passages. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Leviticus 20, verse 10, it says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. We know from Exodus 20, 14, one of the commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. Also, in Deuteronomy 22, Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to 24, we read the following. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, notice this, because she did not cry out in the city. And the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. We can argue about whether Bathsheba deserved to die or not, but one thing we know, David did. David did. The Mosaic law demanded both adultery and murder be punished by death. You shall not murder, Exodus 20, verse 13. Leviticus 24, verse 17. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. So what David did to Uriah was worthy of capital punishment. The law required that four sheep had to be given back to pay the owner whose female lamb had been stolen. And David knew this because that's what he's referring to in verse 6. In Exodus 22 verse 1, the word of God tells us that if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. David declared, verse 6, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. It may be that the Spirit of God hints here about the successive and tragic deaths of four of David's sons. Bathsheba's first son, verse 18, Amnon in 2 Samuel 13, Absalom in 2 Samuel 16, and Adonijah in 1 Kings 2. This tells us that sin has its consequences, and whatever a person sows, what does Galatians 6, 7 says? That's what he shall reap. And David would soon begin to experience the reality of the fourfold principle of restitution. God used the message of the parable to draw a response from David that would prepare him for the punchline. Moreover, the confrontation of sin involves the targeted goal, the targeted goal, and which is the passing of a verdict as revealed through the answer of the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 7, the first part of verse 7. Nathan then said to David those famous words, you are the man, you are the man. David is unaware that he himself is the man who deserves the judgment. And through the name of the Lord, David pronounces that the one who did this merciless act deserves to die. He's the son of death. He's a goner. The prophet Nathan now boldly confronts David and his sin as he utters, you're the man. 
Imagine, think for a moment. Imagine what damage the effect of unconfessed sin has done to a true servant of God like David. The one who had previously written many a psalm for the glory of God and had understood the Lord's will could not now comprehend the meaning of a simple parable. His spiritual senses are darkened. He doesn't get what's going on. He doesn't understand what is the meaning of the word of the Lord. His unrepentant attitude had blinded him such that he was unable to even understand the simple truth about his acts. And beloved, the same is true with any of us. When we willfully neglect to confess our sins and forsake them, what happens? Our spiritual senses become darkened, and then there is a spiritual apathy which sets in with an increasing downward spiral effect where we may become like David, who carelessly said to Joab, he carelessly counseled Joab in 2 Samuel eleven twenty five by saying, do not let this thing, that is David's cold-hearted, murderous plot in having Uriah killed. He said to Joab after he got the news that Joab had, uh, had had Uriah and other men also killed just so that he would satisfy David's desire. After he got the news, he said, don't let this thing displease you. Don't worry about it. For the sword devours one as well as another. This is inconceivable. This is unimaginable that these are the very words of the man of God who in his youth was so zealous for the glory of God that he by faith alone defied Goliath the Philistine. Since Goliath had taunted the armies of the living God. But now things have changed. It's different. But this is exactly what sin does to each of us if we fail to forsake it and unconditionally return to our gracious father in humble and contrite repentance. So the Lord had to confront David through his word, through the word of the prophet that the Lord sent, so that he could prepare him to receive his gracious forgiveness and fatherly discipline. A second means of grace through which the Lord works to restore us from our sinful ways is through the condemnation of sin, the condemnation of sin. The confrontation of sin leads to its condemnation as for the word of God, because we need to be confronted by God through his word regarding our sin. And then, of course, once we read about our sin in the word, God's word we know has things to say. God's word condemns our acts and attitudes and actions and words and thoughts, which are sinful. Notice the second part of verse 7. The condemnation of sin is, first of all, justified by the faithfulness of the Lord. The faithfulness of the Lord. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel. It is I who anointed you, king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. We should note that God is not looking to take revenge on any of his children, even when they have blatantly rebelled against him. Our father is not a vengeful God who is intent on getting even with those of his own who have even despised him through willful sinning. God does not condemn the sinning believer because we know the believer is eternally secure, but he condemns and abhors the sin he finds in us. 
King David had somehow forgotten the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord who had given him everything he has. And God says, I would have given you more only if you would have asked. The Lord had done everything to lift him up from the lowly shepherd's life and had made him king over all Israel. What more one could have asked? Hence, God is justified in his dealings with David and Israel's king is left speechless before a kind, just, and faithful God. The condemnation of sin is also evidenced by the uh, ungratefulness of the king. In verse 9 it says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Don't miss the connection between verses 9 and 10. The Lord first says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And then it says in verse 10, Because you have despised me. Despising the word of the Lord is to despise the Lord himself. You've despised me, verse 10, and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Uriah's death with the sword is a general expression because we know from chapter 11, he died by the archer's arrow. There's no discrepancy here. This is gleaned from 2 Samuel 11, verses 24 and 25. In 2 Samuel eleven twenty-four, it says, Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. So we see how David used that general expression, for the sword devours one as well as another, to refer to the, the archers who shot at the servants of David, and among whom Uriah was also one of them who fell and died that day. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, King Saul lost the kingdom through having done what? Rejecting the word of the Lord. Now David's sins were being judged because he had despised the word of the Lord. Notice again the Lord's repeated words of I and you in verses 7 to 10. Each of the Lord's eyes contrasted with the use for David, reveal the hurting heart of God. As if the Lord is saying, David, my son, why did you do this evil? Why? Why did you do it? I gave you everything. I blessed you. I provided for you. I made you what you are today. Yet you, my child, you despise my word. You sinned against me and against another man's family. And by doing this, you despise me. And you even did that before my enemies. The Lord had given everything David desired, yet he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Are we ever ungrateful like that? Ask yourself that question. Are you, am I, ever ungrateful like that? It is a serious thing to despise the word of God through disobedience because doing so is equivalent. It's tantamount to despising God himself. We do not want to kindle the anger of our father because we know it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God, as it says in Hebrews 10.31. To despise the word of God is a serious offense, which will incur God's righteous reaction. Furthermore, the condemnation of sin is validated by the resolution of the Lord. 
Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. We've already discussed that David has already broken a number of God's commandments. He has coveted another man's wife. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he has killed her husband Uriah. Now Yahweh must officially condemn David's heinous acts and unleash his fatherly chastisement on him. Why? Why? Because he wants to take revenge? No. So that David would return in obedience to full fellowship with the Lord. That's God's desire. How sad it is that a believer like David chose to succumb to temptation and was left to suffer its bitter consequences through the rest of his life. Truly, the sword did not depart from David's house and his wife's were violated and humiliated publicly by his very own son, Absalom, in 2 Samuel 16, 22, when he temporarily captured the kingdom. Indeed, David paid fourfold. For the rest of David's lifetime, he experienced one tragedy after another, either in his family or in his kingdom. The price David paid for those few moments of passion with another man's wife cost him dearly so brothers and sisters let us be let us be always mindful let us beware so that we may not lose sight of who we are in christ lest our hearts become hardened by the sin which so easily entangles us as hebrews 12 one says god confronts us to reveal our unconfessed sins He also condemns our sins so that by realizing two things, his faithfulness and our ungratefulness, we may be drawn to him in confession, as we shall see next, through the response of David. Our Lord is intent on restoring his children who have fallen in sin. There's a story about a preacher who often spoke on the subject of sin. He missed no words, but defined sin as that abominable thing that God hates. A leader in his congregation came to him on one occasion and urged him to stop using that ugly word that is sin. He said, Pastor, we wish you you would not speak so plainly about sin. Our young people hearing you, he reasoned, will be more likely to indulge in sin. Call it something else. As inhibition, or error, or mistake, or even a twist in our nature. The preacher thought for a moment, and then he said, I understand what you mean. And then he went to his office and brought out of his desk a little bottle. This bottle, he said, contains strychnine. You will see the red label here, he said, reads poison. Would you suggest that I change the label and paste one on that which says wintergreen? The more harmless, he said, the name, the more dangerous the dose will be. Right? He's right. Sin is serious. It's a serious thing. And we need to label it just as the Lord labels it. So that we may be able to know what is it about. And so that we may know how to overcome it. This brings us to verse 13. And to our third means of grace. Through which the Lord works to restore us from our sinful ways. 
And that is through the confession of sin. The confession of sin. A Sunday school teacher once asked the class, what was meant by the word repentance? A little boy put up his hand and said, it is being sorry for your sins. A little girl also raised her hand and said, you know, girls like to correct boys. And she said, please, she said, please, it is being sorry enough to quit. That's true. She's a smart girl. Little theologian. The confession of sin, first of all, is realized through the repentance of the king. Through the repentance of the king. It says in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4 say, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be despised, mocked, no, no, feared. Although our passage does not tell us, but all through the months leading to the confrontation by Nathan, King David had immensely suffered due to holding on to sin. As you may detect when you read two Psalms that he wrote regarding this sin, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 32 describes David as a broken saint. And Psalm 51 portrays him as a believer who has lost his purity, his joy, his testimony. David severely hurt himself by sinning. Yet he immediately admitted his sin and confessed it without excuse when confronted by the prophet of God. The confession of sin is also confirmed through the response of the Lord. The response of the Lord. And Nathan said to the Lord, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. David's wickedness is shocking. But the grace of God is more than sufficient to forgive and to restore him. Now that David confesses, Nathan breathes on him the words of divine grace. Though David could be restored to fellowship with the Lord, yet the impact of his sin will continue to work its sorrow in the king's life. The Lord graciously pardons David's sin, as he does with each of us when we humbly confess. He also doesn't punish him by physical death as per the law. But David has to suffer the consequences of sin as ordained by God. You see, brothers and sisters, forgiveness does not necessarily eliminate the consequences of our sin in this life. The temporal consequences, if God chooses so, could still be there. Just because he forgives us when we confess, it does not mean that we may be exempt from the bitter consequences of our sin. So ask yourself, how quick are we? Let's ask ourselves, how quick are we in confessing our sins to the Lord? Do we hold on to our sins for long periods of time, much like David did in our story? Or do we immediately confess our sins and forsake them? Please let us keep in mind that only those who promptly confess and forsake their sin will be blessed. That's according to Proverbs 28.13. Because Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceives his transgressions will not prosper. You know who wrote this, right? Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, his son, Solomon. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Will find compassion. The difficulty uh, some have in letting go of their sin is like the experience of the boy who got his hand caught inside an expensive vase. He 
His upset parents applied soap suds, cooking oil, without success. When they seemed ready to break the vase, as the only way to release the hand, the frightened boy said, Would it help if I let loose of the penny I am holding? It is all too often so with us. We cause God, others, and ourselves great anguish because we are not willing to let go of our sin. We've seen thus far that the Lord graciously works to restore the sinful and fallen believer to himself by confronting and condemning sin and by seeking to draw such a believer new to him through one's own confession of sin, something which brings the cleansing of the Lord. A fourth means of grace through which the Lord works to restore us from our sinful ways is through the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. The consequences of sin, first, are set in motion through God's fatherly discipline. Look at verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. That's the Lord's verdict. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow. Notice she is still referred to as Uriah's widow. That Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. Most probably the seventh day is to be reckoned from the time he was born. And which coincides with the time he was struck ill. This implies he did not get circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. And therefore did not even receive a name. Whereas Solomon as we shall see, he got two names. Verse 18, the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. Now, how then can we tell him that the child is dead since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And first, he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he requested, they said food before him, and he ate. Divine discipline is an expression of God's love. It is never intended by the Lord, as we said, to get even with his children when they have sinned against him. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11, attests to the fact that God is a loving father who desires to graciously correct his wayward children so that they may become holy, righteous like him. Please keep this in mind. The severity of God's chastening is in direct proportion to our spiritual maturity and testimony. The severity of God's chastening, of his discipline, is in direct proportion to our spiritual maturity and testimony. What we mean is that the more we are spiritual and mature in our faith and willfully sin, the stricter will be the chastening of the Lord in our lives. And that also for our good. 
The Lord did not interrupt David's prayers and tell him to stop interceding. And it should be so with us. We may not know whether God has decided to answer our prayers or not. Our task, our responsibility is to be diligent and faithful in prayer. By fasting and prayer for the baby, David shows his trust in the Lord and his understanding of God's grace toward him. As well as his love for Bathsheba, we see, and their son. His self-abasement and pleading for the child shows how much his heart is in anguish for him. While his fasting demonstrates that his child's survival is more important than his necessary sustenance and comfort. When in trouble, do we immediately engage in prayer by bringing to God our issues before him since we are convinced he is our only hope? David surely believed so. The humble David is now a contrite man before the Lord. In spite of his sins, David shows he is still a man after God's own heart. Even a thousand years after, we know in Acts 13, 22, the Lord still speaks of David as a man after his own heart. Doesn't this encourage us that there is hope for us as well when we fail our God, when we sin against him, even as believers who love the Lord and we know better that we should not sin? But there is hope. There's hope for David. There's hope for the rest of the saints of the Bible. We know the Bible speaks of God's people's sins as they are. Even the best of them had sins. And we too. Yet we know we can't stay there. We have to return to the Lord in repentance and obedience that God may bless us again as before. And this must encourage us. There's another matter we must consider. It was not the child's fault that David and Bathsheba sinfully conceived him. Why would a loving God, we may ask, uh, not heal the child in response to David's humble prayers? After all, he's innocent, right? Apart from the fact that God desires to teach his servant David a lesson that he would never forget because of his sin. Maybe the Lord took the child away in order to spare him future shame and disgrace. No child would have wanted to grow up being mocked by his peers that he was unlawfully born. Yes, there are no easy answers here, but we have the confidence that the judge of all the earth says what? We'll do the right thing. That's Genesis 18, 25. And by taking the child away from David, the Lord showed him that his sin had consequences through which David would learn to draw nearer to God and be restored the consequences of sin are also tempered or balanced by God's grace. Verse 21, Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. We don't get it, they're saying. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Because David knew what it means to receive the grace of the Lord. And he hoped in his prayer that the Lord would do the same. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. Now she is his wife. And went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Although the prophet tells David that his child will surely die, the king is not willing to resign himself to it. And 
This is evidenced by his statement, who knows? Uh, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. He knows that just as God forgave him and did not take away his life, in the same way his son could have been spared too by God's grace. However, as we know, it was not so with the Lord's will. It was his will to take the child away. In that way, David gets both justice and grace. Grace for him and justice for what he's done. And that justice, of course, is revealed through the death of his son that Bathsheba bore to him. And David knows that he will someday join his son in heaven after his own death. Instead, as we see in the text, God gives David a new son, Solomon, whose very existence reminds his parents of God's grace. His parents call him Solomon, meaning Yahweh's peace or restoration, while the Lord calls him Jedediah, literally meaning beloved of Yahweh, beloved of Yahweh. Our father is a master at teaching us precious lessons through the consequences of our sins. Yet, no matter how the Lord disciplines us, Psalm 103.9 says, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. Because of God's grace, we can always be restored to Him as we repent of sin, just like David did. Let's give proper attention to His chastening, since it is for our benefit. Let's not feel bitter when we realize God is teaching us a tough lesson, so that we may learn not to do it, the next time again, let's learn to love God's chastening grace. Let's learn to love God's chastening grace. It's surely for our good. And He's working in our lives to have us conformed to the image of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we have considered four means of grace through which the Lord works to restore us back to Himself from our sinful ways. Number one, the confrontation of the believer's sin. Second, the condemnation of the believer's sin. Third, the believer's confession and the Lord's subsequent cleansing of sin. And fourth, the Lord's fatherly discipline of the believer through the consequences of sin. One more application, a few thoughts. Are there any of us struggling with unconfessed sin as believers? If there are, then we must confess and forsake our sin. That's the primary application from our text. The believer who holds on to unconfessed sin... We'd be like David, spiritually dry until he lets go through repentance and confession of his sin. It, sin has to be removed from our spiritual systems. And if there's any of us here who's new, who has not yet repented of his or her sins, if any of us who is here who does not know yet what it means to experience the forgiving grace of God, maybe you are here this morning and you feel heavy on your heart after hearing these words from the word of God. Maybe you feel that, yes, I have sin. I understand it, but I don't know what to do with it. Well, the Bible says, we know what needs to be done with it. You got to confess your sin. You got to pray, Lord, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I have sinned. And we read earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us. That's his promise. You can count on it. He will do it. So, Turn to him by faith and repentance, and he will forgive you of your sins. May God bless you, and may the Lord give us uh, another blessed day as we continue to worship our Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your attention.